Now, that's the most important kind of trust because without it, you really can't have any institutions at all that are any good. But trusting institutions is a little bit different. And it's because we're trusting a group, a coordinated group of people to, to produce a certain kind of good or goal or reach a certain kind of goal in a kind of uh, appropriate, morally appropriate way. Welcome to the Acton Line podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Kevin Vallier, political philosopher and associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University, joins Dylan Pommen, Acton's executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, to discuss Vallier's new book, Trust in a Polarized Age. America seems to be falling into further hopelessness, divisiveness, and cultural decay. Yet Vallier sees things differently. He offers effective ways we can defend liberty, protect democracy, strengthen liberal economic institutions, and respect basic human rights. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Hello, and welcome to Acton Line. My name is Dylan Pommen. I'm a research fellow here at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, where I serve as executive editor of our journal, Markets and Morality. I'm joined today by Dr. Kevin Vallier, an associate professor of philosophy and director of the Philosophy, Politics, Economics, and Law program at Bowling Green State University. He's author of the books Liberal Politics and Public Faith, Must Politics Be War?, and most recently, Trust in a Polarized Age. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to get right into this. Uh, Polarization, uh, lack of trust, diminishing trust in uh, the institutions of our society are really hot topics. Uh, in fact, um, as of this recording, very recently, Jonathan Haidt wrote an, a very interesting analysis of social media's effect on these sorts of things. Um, but I want to start with a more general question. Why did you write this book? Uh, well, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty interesting uh, odyssey. Um, I've been interested for a long time in... Um, trying to strip out the kind of intolerant elements within liberal political thought, particularly those that were intolerant of religious perspectives. Because I think there is a kind of strand within liberal thought that's more pluralistic and respectful of diversity. And then there's this kind of more sectarian, secularist uh, strand um, that, that conceives of itself as being tolerant, but in fact is not. Uh, and so my very first book um, was an attempt to do that in a very direct way, to sort of develop a post-secular liberal approach to religion and public life. Um, but then I started to think about the problem at a higher level of abstraction. I mean, the issue was not just do we tolerate religion, but rather how do we think about toleration across ideological differences? Is there such a thing as ideological toleration that we could reach that's like religious toleration? Because, you know, one thing that I've, you know, that you know, one philosophy that's influenced me a lot, even though I don't agree with him on a huge amount, is John Rawls. And one of the sort of paths of the development of his thought toward, was towards recognizing that there was reasonable disagreement about the good life. And so that the kinds of ways that we want to stabilize uh, a free and well-ordered society couldn't rely on a single conception of the good. But 
towards the very end of his career, he began to admit that reasonable pluralism applied to conceptions of justice. But he wasn't able to draw out that theme. So if the same arguments about reasonable pluralism about the good apply to justice and we have to sort of tolerate different perspectives on, say, distributive justice, which is one way that uh, direction that I would go, resisting the Rawlsian tendency towards calling different views unreasonable. And I thought, okay, well, what can hold a diverse society together, right? What could hold it together? And I thought, well, you know, it would be nice if this question could be approached partly at least from an empirical perspective. And I thought, well, he, you know, here's the thing that really holds societies together at all is social trust. This is our, our faith that strangers will follow established norms. Mm -hmm. And so I started to look, you know, as is my kind of approach at the study of trust from both the philosophical and uh, political economy perspective and tried to develop a kind of unified interdisciplinary approach to its uh, study. And then to see if indeed it was the case that liberal institutions could produce trust across diverse perspectives, um, both um, uh, empirically um, but also in a way that made a kind of rational sense. Right? Could, could, could liberal institutions provide people with a kind of motives that made them trustworthy to people with other points of view? And so the, the big trust project that became my two books, Must Politics Be War and Trust in a Polarized Age, arose out of that kind of gradual – line of thinking, of drawing out different themes, of taking older thoughts to a higher level of abstraction and so on. Uh, and so I realized, you know, when I was trying to put together this interdisciplinary approach that um, there was a lot of debate about the sources of social trust. And I became gradually convinced by the economists that I'd worked with that social trust tended to be uh, a cause far more often than it was an effect. And then, in fact, we didn't know very much about what caused social trust. And so there was one puzzle that we didn't know very much about also. The United States is the only established democracy, that is one that's been a stable democracy for more than 50 years, where social trust is falling in any statistically significant way. Mm. Most countries have been extremely stable, even across vast policy changes. Some countries have become more socially trusting, but the only ones that have really fallen are ones that are recent democracies. Um, for instance, uh, Chile and uh, Romania and Poland are three examples. Mm. So I thought, okay, well, why is the United States different? I mean, what's going on? And some, you know, some people say, oh, well, inequality leads to less trust. Well, but in wealth inequality has risen, you know, not crazily more in the U.S. than it has in other countries whose social trust hasn't budged. Mm -hmm. Said, okay, well, ethnic diversity. Well, but I mean. We've had ethnic diversity for a while um, and we're better at tolerating it. So trust is falling even though our ability to ethically tolerate ethnic differences has increased. So well, that didn't seem to be mm -hmm. the reason. And so I started to puzzle together causes and I thought, OK, well, what about political polarization? I mean, what if we're separating out into groups and that's making it harder for us to sort of trust the generic person because, oh, they might be a member of the bad group. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I developed the kind of hypothesis that I wanted to try to uh, fight back against in the book, which is what I you know, called the you know, distrust divergence hypothesis, which is that falling social trust and rising political polarization are playing into each other as a kind of feedback loop. And it's really not hard to see why this would be true in a general way, right? I mean, more polarized populations might have more trust, uh, trouble trusting the kind of representative individual. Um, that uh, less trusting populations are more likely to grow polarized because when they encounter disagreement, they'll be more likely to attribute it to vice rather than confusion or mistake. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm in the process now of trying to get uh, a lot of the empirical research on that particular connection really tight and and um, and presentable in an empirical form. Um, but as a philosopher, I'm 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 still looking for good social scientists. So if there's people in the audience who want to join, <laughs> join me. Uh, feel free. So that's where this book, Trust in a Polarized Age, came from. Was trying to think about. Um, how to kind of stop the fall of both trust in other people, which is the most important kind of trust, but also trust in institutions, uh, and to bring polarization more under control, and whether that meant that we needed to use liberal institutions or whether we really needed to do something very different than what we've been doing institutionally. So you mentioned already social trust. Uh, You talk about social and political trust in your book. how do you use these terms? Are they distinguished? How do you distinguish them? What would be some examples of social trust on the one hand and political trust on the other? So social trust is trust, in the, when I think about this, in the kind of representative stranger. And when we trust, we're not just making predictions about behavior. There's a sense in which we're depending on people uh, to act in certain ways in order to realize our plans or values. So a very common example of social trust is just being able to trust people when you're driving to follow certain informal norms, mm-hmm. ones that aren't especially clearly codified by law, like, say, allowing someone to merge into oncoming traffic, right? This is a stranger. You're probably never going to interact with them again. Um, but you do need to be able to rely or depend upon them mm-hmm. um, for you to get from point A to point B. Again, you don't know anything about them. You don't know their religion. You don't know their values. But you do, in a sense, trust them to follow certain established norms that enable society to function well. Uh, and so that, when I think of social trust, I think of it's the, the trust that people will follow the kind of panoply of central uh, cooperative norms in their society. So another an example of social trust would be you know, the trust that if you left your wallet behind in Starbucks that someone would bring it back to you mm-hmm. or the trust that you're not going to be mugged if you walk in certain areas. Um, look at any of kind of the basic moral norms that are widely recognized and understood to apply to all. Uh, and social trust involves thinking that people tend to comply with those moral norms um, rather than, um, than not. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the most important kind of trust because without it, you really can't have any institutions at all that are any good. Mm-hmm. Um, but trusting institutions um, is a little bit different. And it's because we're trusting a, group, a coordinated group of people uh, to, to produce a certain kind of good or goal or reach a certain kind of goal in a kind of uh, appropriate, morally appropriate way. So, for instance, if you decide to trust the EPA, if you trust the EPA, what that means is that you trust them to protect the environment in a way that is generally non-corrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's both – with political trust or institutional trust, there's a kind of input and output element. The output is we expect them to produce a certain output reliably and the input elements that we expect that they will bring about the output – uh, in, in accord with sort of basic moral norms. So that's what distinguishes political trust from social trust is we're trusting a, a group of individuals uh, to ethically generate certain kind of outcome. So in your introduction, uh, you talk about the decline in trust and the growth of polarization increasing legislative gridlock. And this is one of many kind of contrarian questions I have prepared. But uh, why is that a bad thing? I tend to think sometimes we got too many laws and I like it when it's very hard <laughs> to write new ones. Um, is, is it maybe a feature and not a bug? So um, you know, I'm a kind of classical liberal and I think that legislatures can go, can go wrong. Um, But one of the things that I'm increasingly uh, concerned about 
um, is that the institutions of every society involve maintaining trust across diverse perspectives. And those include people who are more friendly to positive legislation than I am. And so if you have institutions where, you know, gridlock is extremely difficult and the libertarians always winning because the law did not always, not really, because... This is not the real world you don't, we're talking well, about. Well, you don't win, yeah. you don't <laughs> win from, libertarians don't win from status quo bias because yeah, the status yeah. quo isn't libertarian. Right. So the gridlock keeps the status quo in place, but it might keep things getting, from getting worse from a classical liberal perspective. But I think what it does do is it makes it harder for different political groups to resolve their differences. And so even if that means more legislation, I think it could mean more harmony, cooperation, and indeed freedom because when people, I think, can trust one another, they're less likely to try to control each other. You mentioned also uh, – and this kind of – you know, these are all somewhat related questions. But um, why do you believe that law and policy – our best hope in terms of reversing the trend of declining trust in the institutions of liberal society. Uh, seems like a interesting focus when a lot of people might think of trust as a more cultural, social, you know, something before or uh, distinct from the level of law and policy. Well, so my goal in the book was to defend liberal political institutions. So specifically what I call liberal rights practices. Right. Mm -hmm. So you, the liberal rights practice of free speech is just the general norms where people can freely kind of speak their minds on a wide range of issues. So the question was, you know, do liberal political institutions help or hinder trust? Now, there's lots of other things too, but they're just not the subject of the book. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I, the truth is we don't really know how social trust is learned and transmitted. And one of my next big projects is working on a big Templeton grant with Christina Bicchieri at Penn trying to look at the underlying sort of cognitive uh, elements of social trust as they uh, uh, exist um, in terms of uh, people's uh, compliance or failure to comply with certain social norms in impoverished communities. So we're going to be looking at the relationship between social norms and social trust. And my hope is to try to build a theory of how social trust is learned and transmitted um, because we don't know. What I've tried to say is, well, you know, there are some things institutionally that can make social trust worse. But in general, yeah, we're not going to restore the social trust that we've lost um, with a few new laws and policies. Although there are some things we can do to keep things from getting, getting worse, yeah. All right. So another kind of contrarian one, but uh, – I love it. Just, just is, let is, it rip. Is trust always a good thing? No. Um, so, yeah, doesn't trust – Require warrant or trustworthiness. Yes, that's right. Right. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, to what extent might distrust be desirable? So, my general thought on this is that um, trust is all always um, uh, in need of rational justification, and what justifies trust attitudes is trustworthiness. Right. Mm -hmm. So, we don't want to increase trust in manipulative ways by, like, you know, leading people to think that others are trustworthy when they aren't. Right. Mm -hmm. So, all the policies I talk about are ways of generating more trustworthiness. Okay. Right. And and maybe even you know I didn't talk as much about this in the book of publicizing that trustworthiness. Mm. Because you know if if how trust, would you publicize it? Well, for instance, it may be the case that people have just false beliefs about how untrustworthy people are, for instance, about the behavior of, of politicians or civil servants or things like that. Now, it might be the case they behave worse than people think, in which case it would be. But, but I think the better thing to do is for people to adjust, adjust their trust levels to reality and then you, you, know, you try to work from there. So it's not a matter of maximizing trust. But, but let me make a, a, 
make use of the distinction we had earlier between social and political trust. I think when social trust is undergirded by social trustworthiness, it's pretty much an unmitigated good. Um, it, you know, the literature on this suggests there's almost really no cost to it being high. Um, you could just you can build institutions better, lower crime, but more psychological well-being, more economic growth, more economic equality, even at the same time. Um, it, it's just great stuff. <laughs> um, political trust is different though because you're trusting in some cases people that are extremely powerful and that are extremely good at masking their motives. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you have maximum political trust, that would be bad. But one of the things I try to make, convince classical liberals of is that you can have too little political trust as well. So a lot of times we think, well, it's great to like not trust politicians at all. But I think this makes them behave worse in certain cases. So, for instance, if um, I think about it this way, Sweden has undergone massive, massive policy changes over the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. People don't really understand how much things have changed. They kind of had a small government and then they went for democratic kind of socialist arrangements and then they moved towards high spending but more markets to a capitalist welfare state. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, their social trust levels are extremely high and they didn't change at all across those changes. Hmm. Um, which is extremely interesting. Um, but here's one thing they were able to do. They were able to dramatically deregulate the economy and massively cut taxes. Hmm. Now, why could they do that? And whereas in our country, if the right-wing party proposes cutting taxes, they're monsters, right? They're, they hate the poor. But a, a, a Swedish pro-market politician can say, yeah, we need to try privatizing this industry because it's just not working out very well. When you don't trust politicians, I think the politicians end up keeping their ear low to the ground, right? They want to just do whatever their constituents want. But understanding a lot of the arguments for markets requires that the people give trust to their representatives to sort of think through the arguments a little bit more, mm -hmm. right? So that when they're trusted, politicians can come and say, yeah, it may sound bad that we're going to privatize this, but actually there'll be more, comp you know, there'll be more competition and it'll work better. And the people can say, OK, I trust this guy. So I think one difficulty with low political trust is it makes it harder to liberate markets. Now, of course, it also makes it easier um, to justify certain expansions in government if that's what people are for. Um, but I really think it's hard to move in a free market direction when there's very low political trust. So you've already touched on this, but I'd like to kind of tease it out. Uh, you condition your support for liberal institutions uh, or rights, habits, on the basis of them being publicly justified. What does it mean in your view for a policy or institution or practice to be publicly justified? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a really important idea, but that a lot of people are unfamiliar with the term. And philosophers bandy about it and use it in different ways. Now, I'm in the unique position of being the uh, editor of the uh, entry on public justification for the Sanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So, so you've literally uh, defined it. So I, I get to decide what it means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and um, the simplest way to explain it is that some law or policy is publicly justified when each person from their own perspective can see sufficient reason to endorse it um, as uh, governing their own behavior and the behavior of others. So it's a, it's a multilateral justification or uh, a justification to multiple perspectives. The way it's been traditionally understood sometimes is it's run together with this idea that uh, the justification occurs in terms of reasons that all can share or that all can accept. Okay. Uh, but I think the root idea, the, the sort of generic idea is just that 
we justify law and policy to different point, ultimately different points of view based on the reasons that people themselves can grasp. So it's justification to people by their own lights. Hmm. Um, so a little less yeah. Rawlsian in that sense. And I think the Rawlsian variety of public justification is a way of specifying the idea, but I don't think that's the most generic form of the idea. So for instance, my dissertation advisor, Jerry Gauss, was responsible for pushing what we call the convergence view of uh, public justification, where a justification, a public justification, can consist entirely of unshared reasons, right? There's a justification on um, uh, to person A based on their their religion, to person B based on their religion, to person C based on their ideology, and so on and so forth. Uh, and ultimately, that is Rawls's notion of an overlapping yeah. consensus. He thinks he starts with the shared reasoning part. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that what's clear in his work is that there's a kind of ambiguity or tension between whether it's the shared reasons part that he thinks is really morally important or if it's the overlapping consensus part that he thinks is really important. And I think ultimately it's the overlapping consensus portion and that the shared reasoning is best understood as a heuristic for finding points of overlap. Okay. Um, so yeah, so uh, you know, a, a public justification for those of you know maybe to get a little more obscure, but those of you who have a kind of more traditional philosophy background um, in epistemology, it would be a kind of internalist justification that is people have access to the evidence for the for the claim or that's being made or the policy that's being proposed. People can see they can make themselves aware of what justifies the thing to them. But, would you relate that to natural law? Um, so the relation public justification natural law is I I extremely complex and rich, and it's w one of the other of my next projects. So there's this kind of political economy project, and there's this kind of political theology project. Um, and there's a, there's a number of different ways of thinking about how they go together. But I think it's useful to return to Hobbes and Locke and to think about – because I think that they both have doctrines of public reason and doctrines of natural law. Mm -hmm. And I actually am controversial in thinking that you can detach Hobbes's uh, prob the problematic that he raises uh, within natural law from his metaphysics. Hmm. Um, so so you, you can say, for instance, that the, the questions he raises about the ambiguity in interpreting the natural law and the need for a common interpreter would apply on to any metaphysical broader perspective. It's not specific to his materialism or whatever. Yeah, it would be kind of hard for Hobbes to expect everyone to believe that God is corporeal. In order yeah, for his but, system I mean, to that, work. That, oh, we, could, we could get pretty deep into his, his, why he has all this wacky theology in, in, yeah. in book three and book four. But, but the, the, the issue in the first half of the book and the issue you know, for Locke in the second treatise um, is that people have disagreements about natural law and they have disagreement about how to apply it. And Hans has this distinction that I think to many people is obscure, but I feel like I, I have a... An, uh, I have a view about what, he, what he's after. He says the natural law can bind in foro interno or in foro externo. Now, in foro interno is that you, the natural law binds the conscience, mm -hmm. right? You grasp the natural law and you think you're morally bound to abide by it, not only, say, because it's in itself good for you to follow, but because you think also God wants you to follow it. So can, and, and Hobbes allows you can see it as beneficial. You can see it as a divine command, but that's how it binds in for internal. But it also has to bind in for external. That is – and this is my sort of way of understanding it following Jerry Gals. Um, binding in for external is that we can hold each other to an interpretation of the natural law. Hmm. We can say, look, we've agreed that this is the way to understand it. Now, in Hobbes' state of nature, my view is it isn't a moral free zone. The natural law still binds in foro interno. 
But there's no common authority to make the natural law by uh, 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 externa. No social contract. Right. Yeah. And so the state of nature is not a state free of natural law of morality. Absolutely not. It's just a, it's just a state where there's no a, a common interpreter. There's no voice of the reason of the public. Okay. And I think for Locke, it's the same kind of idea. Now, why does natural law for Hobbes lead to public reason? Well, there's a number of different natural laws that go in that direction about keeping covenants, but also not being a judge in your own case. And people underestimate how important this is. So because, of course, there's a natural law <laughs> that you aren't to be a judge in your own case. That's obvious enough. That's clear in Scripture. That's clear from just reason, right? The people tend to be biased, and so you want some sort of third party. But if you apply that logic to natural law, then there's this really fascinating way in which natural law is kind of self-effacing because the natural law tells you to submit to a common judge about natural law, which actually that judge could, could actually be mistaken about natural law. Hmm. Um, and so it, it creates this kind of uh, natural law uh, uh, about the understanding of natural law, about the interpretation of natural law. And so this is, in my view, how natural law leads into public reason and why natural law theorists should be interested in public justification because what they're interested in is having a social order that all can accept because we want an order based on reciprocity and we want an order based, um, based in people, again, not being judges in their yeah. own case. You know that despite what you'd prefer to be the case, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and religion, uh, freedom of religion, don't seem to noticeably increase or decrease social or political trust, unlike other variables uh, such as economic uh, and political freedom. Uh, and it's not clear why. That's right. um, so despite the fact that your goal is to be very empirical, um, I'm curious if you'd care to speculate. What, what's, your, <laughs> what's your working hypothesis as to why this does not correlate uh, positively or negatively with social Yeah, we ran trust. the numbers. I mean, we just ran – my economist friends, you know, we ran the numbers and just nothing came up. And that doesn't mean there aren't – there isn't something more there. We just couldn't find anything enough to, for me to, to say much about. And reading all the secondary literature on social trust running through all the different topics and subfields and we just couldn't find anything on it. Um, and um, – my best – well, my best guess on freedom of speech and freedom of the press is that it doesn't come up that much in day-to-day -day life. Um, these are things that, um, that um, are different than am I being robbed? Am I being defrauded at the market? Um, are the police protecting me? You know, those are the kinds of things that I think are more salient for most people. And so those are ones determining so much of the, the variance. Now, if we moved away from free speech, the way in which that's conveyed to the public could have a massive effect on trust mm -hmm. because the thought would be, okay, now there are these new restrictions. This is one reason I think, you know, we're having a lot of new kind of even more serious cultural conflicts because there are these background norms of free speech that, that are observed and so they're not really moving the dial on trust very much. But if you start to mess with them, that could be a really big deal. So if you, you start to restrict freedom of religion, for instance, there's this norm that people think is respected for the most part and then it starts to be massively violated. The violators are going to be trusted a lot less. Hmm. That's my hypothesis anyway. So what I'd like to do at some point is look at societies that moved – away from a liberal freedom that doesn't register on its own hmm. and then to see if you can explain changes. But the problem is that changes in social trust are slow. Well, well, 
they're not, they're, they're actually in the U S they've been slow. Um, it's been a very gradual decline over the last 50 years. And some of the new democracies it's, it's fallen really quickly and we're not quite sure why hmm. one, one of it might just be that they have a whole electorate to blame for outcomes rather than just a small group of, of people. We don't yeah. know. We don't know. Yeah. Um, so my suspicion is that they're sufficiently entrenched norms that, um, people aren't really, um, paying if they're not seeing violations and adjusting their trust on the basis of that. But if they were being violated, um, the fact that they are norms, people would think, okay, pe I can no longer rely on people to uphold this norm. Hmm. Um, that's my best guess. Again, I, I only tried to speak on issues where there seemed to be an empirical basis to speak. Yeah. So, yeah. So follow up, uh, to, address at least one of these aspects from a different angle. Um, if freedom of religion doesn't seem to matter, there's no currently no good evidence. Um, what about religiosity? So, you know, church attendance, Definitely. how often do you pray? Uh, okay, so is yep. there actual data on this? Because yep. Protestantism okay. predicts social trust. Interesting. So yep. a specific uh, traditional adherence does... And post -pro I mean, post-Protestant countries remain high trust, but it looks like Protestantism is related to social trust in some way. It does predict social trust. It okay. is it is. I was a concerned. Predictor. So that's interesting, and we can talk more about that. I was actually interested more in um, things like uh, so measures of religiosity are not so much uh, religious. Um, oh, then you get allegiance, the, yeah. but like, how often do you go to church? How often do you pray? Uh -huh. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in miracles? Yeah, you, you know, yeah, this, yeah. this sort of uh, side of it. Yeah, I mean, the 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 issue here is I actually think there's major stories to be told about the relationship between trust and religion and Christianity in particular, but they're at a much larger time scale. Mm. So here, I'm very influenced uh, by Joe Henrik's work. Um, but, and I, I could, I could talk about his story about how Christianity gave rise to high social trust, uh, uh cultures. Hmm. Um, it's a very strange story. Um, but it's, <clears throat> it's one for which he has a great deal of evidence. So I actually think, um, um, that Christianity's played a very important role in, uh, creating high social trust cultures. Um, but, um, but yeah, I don't, I think it, I think those changes operate over centuries hmm. and so they're not going to come up in the trust data, even if there's good broader theories about their relationship. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could talk about it, that issue for hours because I'm interested in the, the cognitive determinants of, of social trust. And I think there's a gene culture coevolution story that, um, um, that helps to tell. It also helps to to evolve socially trusting institutions to have a very cold month. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yes. So the weather actually matters. So yeah, it, Northern yeah. Europe tends to be more, although they tend to be more Protestant, so I don't know They're if also can more disentangle those trusting. variables. But you yeah, can. Tend People to be have more... tried and have. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Siberia, you know, Russians from, from the North aren't, aren't very high social trust. There's, a, there's an interesting difference. And one... One one difference is the way the Catholic Church and then Protestantism continued um, to discourage uh, familial intermarriage. Okay. So that is discouraging, for instance, of marrying first cousins or second cousins or third cousins. Mm -hmm. And what Henrik thinks is that these kind of in, expanding incest taboos, the effect of them was to destroy clans. Mm -hmm. And so most societies, you know, evolve in clans and you trust people in your clan. You don't must trust people outside your clan. But mm -hmm. if the Catholic Church destroyed clans – yeah. Destroy yeah. – think about it. Catholic right. Church destroys the traditional family. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, right. There's right. A, a weird sort of irony there. Yes, um, and and then what happens is you've got you know Sweden, so you don't have clans. You're you're a Swede. It's gonna get really cold. There's no clans. What do you do to eat? Right. Yeah. Well, now you have to invent an institution for thousands of people to get along with each other. Whereas before your clan of 150 would have done, but your church destroyed it. Yeah. So worth differentiating. I'm a little familiar with some of this research that I know that uh, in the West, it was at, at one point, I think up to a sixth cousin. Yes, could that's not what Henry says. Yeah, Whereas in the East, sick, they yeah. did still pro- prohibit up to first and second cousins, I think, pretty commonly yes. uh, yeah. from marrying. But it was so at the lesser degree, but yes. still Henry similar to still tab- taboos. Yeah. They weren't yeah. like, yay, yeah. incest in the Christian East. No, 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 right? no, 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 no. And as an um, Orthodox Christian, I would want right. to push back against anyone thinking that. But no, so, so actually, Henrik told me that he's doing his research on. Orthodoxy now, and the okay. difficulty is that the the records are in Greek, and so he has to get a lot of it translated. Okay. Um, and so, but what his prediction is is that in general that Orthodox are a little bit less uh, dogmatically litigious than Catholics, and so there'll be the he predicts there'll be the effect, but maybe to like third and fourth rather than fifth and sixth cousins. We could get into a whole thing about. Uh... Kiev and Russia yes. as a very clan-based society, but I think yes. I think that's too far afield. Um, yeah. All right, so let's go through your chapters. I have one question per chapter. Yeah. Doesn't have to be like a lightning round sort of thing, but yes. uh, but they might be. Some of them might be shorter answers than others, and that's okay. So, if politics isn't war, what isn't? Aren't elections like war zero-sum competitions instead of positive-sum exchanges? So. Somebody wins an election, somebody else doesn't also get to win. Whereas if I go to the grocery store and I buy a candy bar, I get a candy bar, the grocery store gets my money, we both win. Um, there's, there's a likeness between those two things. Isn't, uh, if politics isn't war, what should it and hopefully could it be? I mean, it's a lot like a competition where one side wins and the other loses and then they go home and they're friends, right? Um, you want okay. politics to be um, less like a war and more like a football game. Okay. Um, where the stakes are lower, right? Mm-hmm. And um, people get really invested and upset, but that when it's over, they go back to being fine, mm-hmm. right? Um, so we, sh- we need more Lions fans uh, yeah. across the country, right? That's, yeah, well, I mean— My expectations are very low when it comes to football. <laughs> but the, the thought would be is that people can see each other having their policy differences— more as adversaries rather than enemies, not as people to be vanquished, but as people that we'll play the game with again. And that it's good that they're there. They're so very wrong, but it's good that they're, it's good that they're around. Um, and, and that's the way I see democratic politics in many democratic countries. I mean, it, you know, most democratic countries are nowhere near as polarized as we are. And they can have an election and then go home and they don't harbor, you know, secret. The election was stolen. These people are all evil monsters. Um, you know, I mean, Germany learned to depolarize very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, it, and its politics is pretty boring. Uh, and maybe, you know, economist Tyler Cowen suggests they actually their politics might not be polarized enough. Um, so, you know, you don't want to eliminate polarization. You want people to be able to offer real differences and alternatives for democratic peoples to choose between. But um, I think we, if we look at democracies uh, other than our own, we can see the kind more healthy democratic cultures. And we can look back in our past, you know, and see also more healthy periods for democracy in, in, in certain respects, not in others. Uh, so, you know, I think that we're just in such an extreme state that we need to be careful not to generalize from our immediate personal experience. 
to what extent does civil society and freedom of association cultivate trust? Um, mm -hmm. Can't people associate for the purpose of undermining liberal institutions? Uh, does digital association count, such as various subreddits, for example? Um, you know, where, what counts as civil society and is it all good? Oh, wow. Gee, a lot, a lot there. So, so the, the complication here is that it was sort of a hot topic in view in the 90s because of Robert Putnam mm -hmm. that associational life contributed to social and political trust. And a lot of people since then have run the numbers and they've totally blown up the idea that there's a causal, a direct cause from being involved in associations to trust. It looks like it's the other way around. High trusters or high joiners. Okay. There's a correlation, but it, 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 it's high trusters being high joiners. Um, and but but um, I do think that the data doesn't distinguish between the associations that are more open in terms of serving others and those that are more insular. So you're not going to see a causal effect because some um, some are bridging institutions and others are bonding institutions. Hmm. Um, and my suspicion is that bridging institutions um, do build trust among younger members. Um, and that bonding institutions can do this too. It just kind of depends on what they're bonding around. Um, but um, a lot of the effect also I think has to be uh, disaggregated by age mm. because it looks like social trust attitudes harden in early adulthood. Mm. And so what you really want to look at is kids who are raised in associations versus kids that are not. Hmm. Um, well, what sort of uh, – you know? Kid associations or multi-general associations uh, would you have in mind? There? Oh, churches are the big one. Church, okay. Churches are the big one. Okay. Really. No, they're, the, they're the major alternative. Um, but there are service organizations too that used to be a lot more common in the United States where people would grow up in them or they'd be involved in um, – but a lot of kids' activities, Cub Scouts, sports, those kinds of things where, you know, when are you going to interact with and be on a team with someone of a different – race, mm -hmm. right? Well, probably in sports and school, yeah. you know. Um, so it's about that. It's about contact with people that seem different. Hmm. Um, so, th so I do think association does tend to produce more trust under conditions where there's a certain level of contact with diversity among younger people and that the, the contact experiences are positive. Hmm. That's what I would, I, okay. I feel confident saying. So it's interesting that religion comes back into play in terms of uh, associational uh, society, yeah. Um, maybe not necessarily the freedom of religion itself, but to the extent that the people participate it. in it, actually does matter. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, I think a lot of people uh, would agree, or at least a lot of people listening to this podcast would agree, that market economies require some level of social trust. Yes, um, but how and to what extent do they encourage it? Um, aren't places like you know Boris Yeltsin's Russian Federation? A uh, counterexample to the, the do commerce theory that uh, if people are just out there exchanging, they're going to learn to trust one another and things are going to get better. Um, in Russia, you had very low trust. They kind of sort of got a more market-friendly economy. It's still very um, far from that. But they ended up with cronyism, oligarchs, uh, still not a lot of social trust, a lot of corruption. Um, so it, to what extent is this true? Is there any limit to it? The Russia case is very difficult because you essentially obliterated commercial skill in in Russia because you had communism for 80 years. Right. In Eastern Europe, you had communism – and China, you had communism for about half that period of time. 
mm-hmm. right? And so people didn't forget how to transmit the ability to run basic commercial enterprises. Mm-hmm. So Russia's a, a really weird example because it was so it was so ferociously anti-capitalist for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm 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 disinclined to to generalize from it. But another problem is that communism is one of the few things we know destroys social trust because what communist regimes do is they pit strangers but yeah. neighbors against each other. Mm-hmm. And so you can look at East Germany even today still lags pretty far behind West German social trust. Um, but it's very clear in the data. Communism is terrible for social trust. So, for instance, at the end of um, – <clears throat> uh, before Ger- you know, German reunification, right in 1989, about one out of every 20 East German adults were members of the secret police. So you literally right. didn't know who you could trust. Right. Right? Yeah. And so – and so, so, so another thing is that communism is just disastrous for social trust. So you shouldn't expect for a communist culture to just like bounce back mm-hmm. like that. Um, so I don't worry about the Russia as a, uh, as a contradiction there. Um, I also think, you know, the highest trust countries, it's not a coincidence that they are, uh, tend to have free markets. Now, they may have high tax rates, okay. but that's different than having deregulated right. markets. So Sweden, yeah. you know, when you look at the economic freedom scores and you remove tax rate, they're really, really strong. Hmm. Um, that's one of the main places they get dinged. Um, but that's more something government does. The market interactions are, can you go in and have an, a reliable exchange? Can you trust that the product is any good, you know, and so on. Another thing, going back to Henrik, is one of the big counterexamples to Henrik is that there's high social trust in maritime centers outside of Western Europe. Hmm. So the, the sort of the ports where people are interacting, you know, cross-religiously, mm-hmm. um, looks like some of those areas uh, are higher trust. Um, and I think that helps the do commerce thesis um, as looking at social trust in maritime zones or big, big uh, trading uh, sh- sh- shipping cities and so on. You talk about social insurance and welfare rights as positive. Um, they're liberal institutions that cultivate <clears throat> trust. Uh, but the administrative state is a bad thing. Um, or at least you, you talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm just going to wear Hayek. So, to what extent in the American context are those two things separable? Isn't big government necessary for a generous welfare state? Um, so I think that what you see from the transformation of the Nordic governments is that at least high trust countries can st- considerably streamline what their governments are doing. So, for instance, one of my co-authors, Andreas Berg, has an account of how the basically the Swedish pension system works. It just operates by a series of extremely simple rules. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our social programs that aren't means tested do too. I mean, so social security, people don't say the stuff about the social security office that they say about the DMV yeah. or that they say about the IRS or that they say about, you know, local welfare offices, right? I mean, it is possible to run government programs just in accordance with very, very simple rules. Um, and if those institutions actually provide a kind of safety net where people don't have to worry about their economic security. I think that's something that that really does move trust in government is that is that people feel like government policy ensures that they're not going to endure some absurd, pointless risk for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and this rubs a lot of classical liberals, you know, get a little get a little worried about this. But the truth is, I think one of the biggest reasons most people aren't classical liberals is that classical liberals are weird and being unusually uncomfortable with risk. 
<laughs> and willing, you know, eager about innovation, eager to roll the dice, you know. Um, and I think that's a, an evolved trait within market societies. So I think classical liberals are just like very cognitively distinct. I think it's extremely important to have lots of classical liberals in any culture, yeah. um, precisely because it's good to have people with high risk appetites. But um, most people just don't have that. Mm -hmm. And um, the welfare state really does help people feel um, that um, the, the basic rug of their lives isn't going to be pulled out from under them. Would you include uh, you know, American bankruptcy law under this rubric? Because um, it strikes me as this is something historically we've been very good at, but nobody thinks of it in these terms as, oh, you know, one of the pillars of our welfare state is our bankruptcy law. But it yeah. exactly does that, right? It allows you to take the risk without risking uh, your entire life. I mean, in some cases, you might lose your livelihood, but you're not going to be, like, starving. Right? You're not going to be know? in a debtor's prison. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, um, I think what's going to matter for trust is two things. One, that people f feel in, uh, feel economically secure and that they causally attribute it to some human institution. Now, a lot of people aren't paying attention on bank bankruptcy laws, and so that may not move the dial in right. terms of trust because that's to be perceived. But um, if people – if it were to go away, <laughs> then people would notice yep. very quickly – um, and so I do think it probably does help to sustain trust where people feel like, okay, bankruptcy law went away for five years. That was terrible because people stopped taking risks and those that did went, you know, or whatever, yeah. um, couldn't drop the debt. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the, also the welfare state can include privately financed and provided benefits, right? Like it doesn't have to be the case that, to get more trust in society or whatever, that the, 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 the benefits have to be dispersed in a bureaucratic context, okay. right? I mean, you mm -hmm. could have school vouchers, mm -hmm. for instance. I'm not talking about the welfare state being government providing direct benefits, just rather that there exists a safety net, okay. right? But if a lot of it's privately provided, that's actually to the good in my mind because it helps the, uh, trust in another way by promoting economic growth. Although, well, economic growth helps institutional or political trust, but not social trust. What is egalitarianism? Why wouldn't people trust each other more if they were all equal? So when I talk about egalitarianism in uh, chapter six of the book, um, what I mean are regimes to the left of welfare state capitalist regimes. So welfare state capitalist regimes, I understand, is they do redistribute wealth in order to uh, reduce poverty. Mm -hmm. And they do it to some degree to compress inequalities, but really only if we think they're going to threaten, say, you know, democratic functioning, right? But a more uh, – an egalitarian society is one what Rawls called uh, property-owning democracy and another even more left liberal socialism – where they place a lot more limitations on differences in income and wealth holdings. So um, a proper earning democracy, as I understand it, adds to a welfare state a capital ceiling and a capital floor. Mm -hmm. So everyone always has access not just to income but to certain assets, which I actually think isn't a problem. I mean even Margaret Thatcher is for that. The problem with um, proper earning democracy is the capital ceiling is that some people aren't allowed to own lots of capital. And one of the problems with this is that it sort of destroys um, a lot of the ability of the stock market to signal profit opportunities because mm. you can't hold lots of capital. The government just taxes it away. And so, mm. um, so the thought here is that it's going to really hurt growth. 
It's going to involve a lot of coercion um, um, because people are going to sort of always be wanting to try to do better. Um, and and the floor was going to would have to be pretty low to follow anything like you know truly egalitarian principles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's destroying the ability of stock prices to function freely to signal profit opportunities that I think is the really mm-hmm. big problem because it causes a lot of, of uh, economic suffering, mm-hmm. less economic growth, uh, less effective public institutions because there's less you know uh, prosperity to invest in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's do you what I think. It, does it also matter that there will always be a certain percentage of the population, in particular the wealthy, who are f- looking for the loopholes and finding their ways around? Mm-hmm. There's so one of the problems with a wealth tax, which has been recently proposed, uh, for example, uh, is that I think something like 15 European countries tried it, yeah, and at least nine, if not more, of them within 10 years abandoned it because yeah. they had to carve out so many exceptions <laughs> because people are like, wait a minute, you're going to count my house, you know, or whatever, yeah, um, that it it either didn't bring them revenue or people just found a way to to navigate all the exceptions. And then you actually have this perception of someone who is an obvious exception to what is supposed to be the wealth cap. Uh, now people are going to be immediately suspicious of them, yeah, less yeah. trusting of them. Yeah. No, I think you know the more rules you have, the more opportunities for violations that you have. And the more opportunities you have for people that are systematically really good at violating the rules. Um, and this is one another reason I think that communism is so bad for social trust is you have all of these controls, but then people who flagrantly violate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you think, no, I'm, my society is completely corrupt. And one of the things we know is terrible for social trust is the perception of corruption, particularly in the legal system. Mm-hmm. If you feel like you can't trust the police and you can't trust judges, it looks like that's a proxy. You think, well, these, these are like the upstanding members of my community. Right. Like I can't trust anybody. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you if you have the people who get away with violating the rules, that's and, a, and it's a particularly identifiable group. That's very 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 problematic from a trust perspective. Hmm. You trigger people's unfair sense of unfairness and yeah, suspicion um, just pops right up. It's sometimes said in a way that's become a meme or a cliche that the United States is a republic and not a democracy. Um, conversely, for some, anything that's less than direct democracy is undemocratic. Um, of course, those perspectives might be easily dismissed in terms of uh, popular rhetoric. But isn't there some truth to the idea that the U.S. Constitution was designed specifically to limit democracy? Since the worry at the time was of the danger of factions and the tyranny of the majority in direct democracies. Um, how do you define democratic constitutionalism in light of that? And how does that relate to social and political trust? Yeah. So, so um, when I think of democratic constitutionalism, I'm thinking of sort of these, these entrenched rules about how we make rules. And there's two sets of constitutional rules that matter. One are rules for choosing officials. And then the rules that officials you have to follow to choose law and policy. And these rules can be both permission rules or prohibition rules, right? Um, when Who can and can't run for office? When can and can't you contribute? Okay. When can and can't Congress make a law, right? Mm-hmm. So democratic constitutionalism isn't that Congress can make any law at once. There's still what I call liberal rights practices that are publicly justified such that they merit constitutional protection. Mm-hmm. Democratic constitutionalism is democratic choice within the span of liberal rights in an ongoing and stable and publicly perceivable way so that follows a kind of rule of law where mm-hmm. the, the, the rules are stable and well-known for how 
the, the portion of things over which we make democratic decisions are indeed made democratically. So when I think of the founders, you know, placing limits, um, one of the big things they're trying to do is protect basic liberal rights. And of course, I'm totally on board with that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's also the case that uh, I do think that it is probably better for social cooperation given the speed at which economic circumstances can change now for legislatures to be able to respond more quickly than the United States uh, legislature is able to respond. And it's important to remember that just because we allow legislators to legislate a bit more easily doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have government explode, right? With plenty of legislatures, you know, we that where government consumes a little bit more GDP than ours, but they can move a lot more quickly. Um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean we're all of a sudden going to have big government if we don't have this, for instance, the Senate filibuster or something like that. Okay. Um, so I think, yeah, we want to move more towards people having the sense that their input matters, um, that their vote isn't totally outweighed by somebody else's vote. I mean, I think a lot of what's going on with the Senate, you know, where people feel, well, okay, if I'm in California, you know, I, my vote matters way less than if I live in Wyoming or something along those lines. I don't think that's going to be good for most people feeling like they have uh, input in the political process or that officials are making uh, rules uh, based on, um, you know, equal treatment or equal regard. So I think when, you know, politicians are seen as playing favorites, democratic constitutionalism is partly about preventing politicians from playing favorites. Mm. They can be very, very bad for trust. So preserving uh, impartiality <clears throat> built into the rules of the, the yes. democratic order. But also that people feel they have input. So it has to be democ democratic, but also the rule of law. So moving to the next topic, uh, I believe the last one, um, elections, of course, are essential to any democracy, but even trust in them has eroded in recent years. Yes. Uh, at the same time, there has been increased push to circumvent, circumvent the legislative process by means of ballot proposals that put the power of state constitutional amendment, for example, in the hands of voters rather than their elected representatives. Do elections always increase trust or are there some things for which elections might actually undermine it? Oh, no. There's, it's, I, think, I think one of the most interesting things about studying social trust in new democracies is it might be the case that you know, when you – the reason that social trust collapses here and there when a country transitions to democracy is um, that holding an election now, you realize that there are all these people that disagree with you, that they voted for someone that you thought was terrible. Um, and so maybe you can't trust people as much as you thought. So that that's, that's possible. I also think though that there are a lot of different ways to run elections and some will produce more trust than others. So for instance, we rely way too much on primaries, which allows very extreme, suspicious people to choose the general election candidates. And then that leaves centrists and other people feeling sort of disaffected, like why the heck are these my choices, mm -hmm. right? And I think we should basically abolish all primaries. Okay. I think parties huh. should choose um, their officials and put them up for well, elections. Well, they used to, right? Yes. Yeah, and they still do in lots of cases, but in most democracies, there aren't these kind of rigorous primaries. Um, they they don't make things more democratic because they they give control to kind of extremely polarized ideologues. I'm curious if that's not universally true. So I think in 2016, that seemed to be the case with the Republican Party. In 2020. 
seem to be the opposite with the Democratic Party. I saw about 15 extremists and one squishy, milquetoast, kind of moderate old guy. And because of their primary system, you had not Biden win, not Biden win, but as soon as they got to the South— um, he just swept through, and because of the way their primary system is it's structured, it's because the El party um, elders swooped in. It's because okay. Clyburn said, "Look, we're we want to we got to be Trump. We're not going to go with Bernie, <laughs> right?" And right. it's because Obama called up Buttigieg and Klobuchar and said, "Hey, get out of here. Get, stop. <laughs> we'll give you a position somewhere. Okay. We'll work it out." Okay. No, it's because the Democrats actually aren't as bound by primaries that they were able to to avoid these more extreme mm. figures. Um, no, I think um, I think party elites, the old backroom deals are actually better than what we do now to have trust building elections. And you may say, oh, well, it's corrupt because the backroom people. Tr-. No, what matters in basically every democracy is that you put up different parties, play a real role mm-hmm. in actually shaping opinion and saying, look, you're a member of the party. We're trusted members of the party. We're going to put somebody up. If we don't like them, we're going to move them out. Yeah. Um and you know people can choose between them, and there's there's no decrease in trust. I mean, the, there's no any there's no evidence that having primaries you know increases trust. And so I think that you know what really matters uh, for elections is people feeling like they have input and that they can at least kind of stomach the candidates. Um, so yeah, there are different ways to do elections, and I think it's pretty clear that some of them will build trust, but others could undermine it. So you have to be careful about about what kind of election. Yeah. In your epilogue, you claim that people need to adapt an attitude of humility toward their political opponents. Uh, but how do people do that? Is there any data on humility? Yeah, what I what I say at the end um, is, you know, I get, you know, you you work hard on a book, you get to give your sermon at at the end. That's mm-hmm. that's one of the privileges mm-hmm. of it. Um, and um, what I'm what I actually am increasingly of the mind of is that. Yeah, just telling people to kind of be more humble is not enough. I mean, it is would help if we had it, but I mean, how do people actually acquire humility in this way? Well, the problem is I think ultimately it's easier to be humble about your political views when you trust people who have other views. Because you could say, well, look, this is a good guy and he doesn't think about it the way that I do. And maybe he knows something I don't know. So you think trust, um, or at least the theory would be that trust is conducive towards yeah, yeah. If you trust people who are different than you, who have different a different faith or different politics, I think it's it's much easier to be humble because you realize that, mate, well, that other person disagrees with me not because they're bad, but because maybe they know something I don't know. Maybe. But is that is yeah. there maybe a catch twenty two there, or a chicken or the egg? Right? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. The, the do whole, you need the whole humility problem, in order to trust? The whole problem right? are all these feedback loops. Yeah. So it's just like, and and if you're you're so you get in a feedback loop that produces low trust, right? It, it's self reinforcing, right? You get into a feedback loop with high trust, it's also self reinforcing, and so it looks like there's these two that ultimately become kind of equilibrio, the kind of lower trust, you know, lower, oh, higher polarization equilibrium and a lower, higher trust, lower polarization equilibrium. And, you know, it's funny when I wrote the book, um, I thought we were moving from the one to the other. Mm. But after January 6th, I now I'm inclined to think that we're already in the low trust, high polarization equilibrium and it's just becoming clear. Um, and so we're, we're really kind of stuck where we are and it's going to be really, really hard to get out of it. And this is precisely for the reasons that you identify, which is that a lot of the things that help trust, trust also affects. Yeah. 
And so you're stuck in this kind of in this kind of feedback loop. All right. Your next book, from what I understand, is going to focus on religious anti-liberalism. That's right. Um, perhaps Catholic antagonism in, in particular. Yes. Um, yet this current book is more philosophical and practical. It doesn't offer a specifically religious perspective. Do you have any specifically religious basis for your support for liberalism and liberal institutions? To what extent does your own personal religious perspective inform your work? Oh, in, in a massive way. Uh, it takes a, a little while to unravel it. But let me just try to do it for your listeners quickly. I have an expansive view of the ministry of reconciliation. And it's not just about preaching the reconciliation of God and man, but about preaching the reconciliation of us with one another. Because one of the consequences of being reconciled with God is that we can be reconciled to each other and that God can bring us all into an eternal embrace, a kind of great drawing near to one another, which is the way I kind of perceive eternity is not only each person growing closer to God, but closer to one another. And so when I think of the ministry of reconciliation on earth, the question is, is it, is it limited to bringing people into the church? But what if we know that some people are never going to enter the church? What does reconciliation with them look like? And I think the best thing it can be is to try to form certain kind of relationships with them, you know, um, you know, cooperative relationships and particularly relationships of trust. And so the way that we exercise the ministry of reconciliation is not by utopian politics, you know, revolutionary vanguardism, uh, hyper-partisanship. It also isn't acquiescing in injustice or anything like that. Um, but it is a sort of constant burying the hatchet. And that's really how I think about sort of my Christian perspective that leads me into sort of public reason and this kind of moral politics, but that isn't a kind of view that says that morality, all of morality should be built into politics. Because ultimately what we can expect in a fallen world is that we can achieve a certain degree of reconciliation, that democracy, uh, liberal rights and markets are ways in which that we, we can be reconciled with each other despite irreconcilable differences. And so, so, so I have a piece on this. Um, in social theory and practice uh, called Christian Reconciliation Through the Public Use of Reason. This is my first essay in political theology proper um, that, I've, that I've published. Is that I, open access? Um, any – your listeners, if they're students, um, they can get it through um, any – you know, um, through their libraries easily. Okay. And if anyone wants to email me, I'll happily share one. Um, but yeah, no, so I'm, I'm starting to think of it in the following way. So let's take a toy Aquinas and a toy Augustine model of political theology. Because okay. a toy, toy Aquinas is that we can embody the whole religious truth in politics, right? That we can have the unity of the sort of secular and religious power in order to promote the whole common good, both the earthly common good of the community and the eternal common good of corporate union with God, right? So, you know, politics is morality, right? Mm -hmm. But then we take the toy Augustinian approach and the toy Augustinian approach, kind of the Niburian read, is that, well, politics is war, you know, it's just a contest of power and that's all we can expect of it um, because of sin and the pervasiveness of sin. And I think the toy models are wrong, but they both are correct about one thing. The, the, the toy Augustine is right that um, sin greatly undermines the capacity for moral consensus. And that means a lot of politics cannot 
be expected to embody the whole moral truth in politics. Aquinas could only get away with thinking about this, of living in the parts of Europe that he did in the time that he did because of the extraordinary unity between pope and crown that existed, particularly in 13th century France, which is unparalleled at almost any other time in human history. The relationship particularly between uh, 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 St. Louis, right, um, uh, King Louis IX and uh, Clement IV, who was the pope and part of that time and his former advisor. Uh, so I think Aquinas is kind of – and Augustine are looking up at their institutions and they're like, this is how institutions are, right? Augustine sees collapse. He sees conflict. Aquinas sees harmony. He sees harmony. Um, and, and my view is tried in between to say, look, I mean there's always going to be disagreement and dissensus. So we, we can't embody the whole moral truth in politics. But we shouldn't acquiesce in a modus vivendi because we have this capacity to trust people who are different than us. Look, we can look around. We can see it. There's plenty of evidence of it. It's studied. And so the right Christian approach to politics is sort of somewhere in between a pure, polit- a pure power model and a pure morality model. And that's the kind of view that I want to be working out with time. Our guest today has been Kevin Vallier. Kevin, thank you for joining us on Acting Life. Very, very glad to be here. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Gabriel Zhaja.